We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Would you please turn with me to Esther chapter 4 this morning? Esther chapter 4. We'll pick up the account here. If you remember from last week, Haman had conspired against the Jews to have them taken out, annihilated, and now we see God using Esther in her position and through the wisdom of Mordecai as well. Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. It's not said here, but perhaps that crying out was a cry to the Lord, a prayer to God of heaven. He went out as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him in the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Let's pause for a second, and it's interesting to think about that. Mordecai, perhaps, is remembering God's prom- promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation, 
And, that, uh, and the implication of that, then, is there has to be Israelites who survive. And, of course, the historical setting here is that there already have been some Jews who have returned to Jerusalem. So perhaps Mordecai's thinking God will keep his promise through that group of people, but there's no certainty that the rest will survive this decree. Verse 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for 33 days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Good morning again. It's good to be here together. Let's take our Bibles and turn them to Luke chapter 4, please. I do encourage you and exhort, if I may say so, that you would have your Bible open in front of you as we look at Luke chapter 4, 31. This is God's Word, it's not man's Word, and my prayer is that you would accept it as it is in truth, the Word of God, not the Word of men. Luke chapter 4, we start in verse 31 today, and uh, we go through the end of the chapter as God wills. It says, then he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. Jesus uh, here would just pause for a moment and say this was frequently on the move. He had uh, just recently given the uh, synagogue goers in Nazareth the slip, as we say. He uh, just slipped out, uh, left the synagogue attenders, the most religious people in the town of Nazareth, rejected him and wanted to kill him. They were murderers in their hearts, Matthew 5.22. If you have anger in your heart like that, you're guilty of murder. The less religious people in that town were probably kinder and of softer spirit than these religious folks, sadly. Their mindset probably was something like, what's the big deal? Let him say what he wants to say. You know, they might think he's crazy or in any case, but would not necessarily develop a gut-level hatred for the man, and this is the... This is the real conundrum. People who are zealous religiously do this kind of thing, and it's happened over and over and over again throughout world history that they think they're offering God a service by breaking God's law of kindness, of, uh, of humanity, and killing somebody who has not done a capital offense. Well, he arrived at Capernaum, which, like Nazareth, was in the Galilee region and began to attend the synagogue there on the Sabbath days. He'd been there before, uh, the scripture tells us um, in a verse, actually that's Luke uh, 4.23, where it says, uh, Physician, heal yourself, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum. Okay, so that reference is not Matthew, but it's Luke, and, uh, and had a reputation already for his miracles and his teaching there. And so as his pattern was, he went in, and it says in verse 31, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. This is his ongoing pattern of conducting himself. 
and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. What did he teach? Well, he taught like John taught, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached, as it tells us later in the text, in verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. And then, furthermore, he taught the kinds of things that we read about and, and studied two times back in chapter 4, 18 through 27, where he preached that section of Isaiah that we, uh, that we read about from the 61st chapter in the prophet, uh, the first couple of verses there, and, verses, and recorded here in verses 18 and 19. And uh, I think he didn't just read those, but he said a little bit about them, and he said, these are fulfilled in your hearing. You know, he's basically saying, I'm the one who is the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's going to heal the brokenhearted and recover the sight to the blind and all of that. So he's teaching about his, his own role and promised in the Old Testament prophets as Messiah and Redeemer. So that's what he taught. That was his pattern. He went in and taught on the Sabbaths. Uh, we'll speak a little bit more about that in just a moment. But we carry on in verse 33. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. This demon was indwelling him, or as we say, possessing, I think is a more common term today that people use, but it's really indwelling him and influencing, controlling him to such an extent that he burst out with this loud voice saying, verse 34, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Right, but he's coming now, this demon, say he's a he, is coming face to face with his judge, Jesus, who is going to take care of him and mop up all of his mess in the end time and throw them into the clink. But Jesus rebuked him, verse 35 says, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Seems like it might have tried to hurt him, throw him down in their midst, but it didn't. Jesus saw to that. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. I wanted to talk just for a moment about the Bible on demons. The Bible doesn't make a whole lot of effort to prove the existence of demons or their leader, Satan. It's almost just like they're there. That's just the way that things are. Jesus certainly did not question their existence. He knew about their existence firsthand as a human being. He'd just gotten off of being in the wilderness with the devil tempting him for those days. And, uh, you know, the demons, he he'd evidently had probably seen them in his first 30 years of his life throughout, uh, you know, the uh, activity that he did just as a young man, young person and young man growing up in the area and experienced that. <clears throat> it's not recorded for us that he did anything about those earlier on before the beginning of his public ministry. But demons are what they always have been since Satan rebelled against God. He, he Satan, convinced certain other angels to rebel with him, uh, follow him in his rebellion against God, and they are now what we know as demons. They are angels who have turned bad. They did not exist, however, in eternity past. Keep that in mind. They 
were created beings in the first six days of the creation week. Only the triune God exists from eternity past. You with me? Okay, so there's not some cosmic, you know, uh, eternal from the eternity past battle of good and evil and God just has kind of come out on top and everything's good. Uh, no, God is the only one who is the eternal being, the triune God. But demons are powerful creatures because they are angelic. They are a type of an angel. Now, they do not have a bodily existence, per se, but they're not infinite either. Angels are spirit beings. Um, And so as beings without a body, they often seek to inhabit the body of another, a person. Remember the the account, uh, the parable the Lord told about the demon who went out of a person. That person's life got kind of cleaned up. And he went out, this demon, in kind of dry places and didn't have anywhere to go. He's kind of a homeless demon. And uh, he wanted to go back. Well, he took seven spirits worse than himself, and they went and dwelt in that person. So there was, you know, now there's eight. So the last state of that person was worse than the first. Okay? Uh, Sometimes if demons couldn't find a person to dwell in, they might uh, prefer to be in an animal. Remember what the demon said to the Lord to cast us into the herd of swine. You know, don't command us to go out into the abyss. They didn't want to go to their prison sentence early, so they went to this, the animals. Somehow this is preferable in a, as a form of existence to the homeless wandering of a bodiless existence for these, for these demons. Now, I'm not suggesting that every demon uh, has a home inside of a human. I'm not saying that. We don't know that. There are probably a lot of demons that are that are bodiless, that don't have somewhere to dwell, as it were. But when Jesus came in his public ministry, he experienced this kind of coming out of the demons. They just kind of came out of the woodwork everywhere. They were just coming. Satan's direct temptations were over for the time being. Remember, it said Satan left him until an opportune time. But he sent many of his demons to interrupt the Lord's ministry and challenge his authority. Of course, they lost each time they did that, but these are continued interruptions and difficulties in the Lord's ministry. These are very, I mean, can you imagine very, very uncomfortable situations with somebody yelling out in the synagogue very inappropriately and uh, demonstrating that they had this problem, they had this demon indwelling them, and uh, just upsets the whole thing. The Lord's trying to teach. He's not trying to be interrupted by people who are yelling out about who he is and what he's doing and, and, uh, and, and opposing him. One of the characteristics that's often found in demonic activity in the Gospels is that demons cried out with a loud voice and challenged Jesus and tried to derail his ministry by identifying who he is before the time. And this was an expression of opposition, but also fear because the demon was coming face to face with one who would ultimately judge them. By the way, back on that point I made earlier about the Bible doesn't really spend a lot of time proving the existence of these things. Uh, people's experience at this time was, was enough for them. They, they understood the Bible does t- talk about angels and, and fallen angels and so on. But the Bible doesn't also do a whole lot of trying to prove that God exists, does it? Because everybody knows <laughs> that God exists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everybody knows in their heart that God exists, and uh, they, might have, they might have compressed that, repressed that, hidden that in the closet, you know, under a bunch of junk in their heart, but it's there. 
Jesus simply spoke a word to this demon and the demon was compelled to leave. Compelled to leave. No debate, no back and forth, no reasoning, no negotiating with the terrorist, I mean the demon. Uh, you know, where they went after they were removed wasn't, is almost never specified, except for that, like that one time when they went into the herd of swine. Sometimes in this case, like uh, the demon left without hurting the individual, but sometimes an attempt was made to further injure that individual. Remember the young boy that was demon-possessed and the demon would throw him into the water or throw him into a fire, kind of this self-harm, but it wasn't really self-harm. It was the demon trying to harm the the body of the child in which he existed, very terrible uh, uh, kind of thing. Now, when the demon left, that means that he did not any longer indwell that person. He was gone. That person was now himself or herself again. Note, again, we often have to say this when we're teaching on this subject. Some people get worried. If you're a Christian, you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you cannot have a demon dwelling in you as well. Okay? The Holy Spirit doesn't like evil roommates. Okay? He can't take it. So they don't coexist in a person's life. We also hasten to add there are no biblical diagnostic procedures for us to follow to diagnose demon possession ourselves, and we're not taught uh, to uh, or how to cast out demons. Our place is to preach the word of God, sharing God's message and the power of God's spirit and leaving the results up to him. We can only really speculate whether a person is truly demon-possessed or not. Sometimes there are times when it seems almost unavoidable, that conclusion. I've heard of some of those cases in my just talking with people from various places in the world. But strange behavior is hardly a sufficient qualification to diagnose somebody as having a demon. People behave strangely all the time, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, Maybe they have mental illness, but even then... I think we can rely on that explanation a little bit too easily um, because, you know, we focus on naturalistic scientific explanations for everything. Nothing can be in the realm of the supernatural today, right? So it's all got to be medical. It's all got to be dealt with with counseling, with, you know, psychotropic drugs and all this sort of thing. Well, what about the possibility that there are people who are so far gone, as it were, because... It's not them themselves, but a demon that's influencing or impacting their life. Now, I've heard, as I mentioned, of suspect cases in various parts of the world, including the United States, and it's my belief that demonic activity will become more prevalent in our society as we fall farther and farther away from our Judeo-Christian heritage. That heritage, the, the pervasive nature of that heritage and the ongoing preaching of the word week by week in thousands and thousands of churches across the United States has had the beneficial impact to this wider society of limiting demonic activity in our land because there is holiness here as well. People live for God, some, and we pray more. Um, But we do see depictions of demonic activity in the popular media, in computer games, an ongoing occult activity in many parts of our society and high society and hidden corners of the the world and human sacrifice and things like that that go on. 
But it is interesting that we do not see a massive expression of demonic activity during our age like Jesus saw in his. They Remember, they're coming out of the woodwork. Why? Because the person of God, the Son, was right there, and so he was at the point of the battle. The fact that we don't have that today is a mercy from God. We don't need disruptions in our services. We don't need disruptions in society. We have... We do have a lot of crazy people out there. We have people who seem, we might say they seem to be possessed. They go out and shoot up a place. For what reason? What good does it do? It's just violence for violence's sake. And the sad testimony of the condition of people. So, but again, we just don't know. Uh, there was a recent case on an airplane where a lady went just bonkers and uh, was crawling over the seats and yelling and carrying on and they had to restrain her and some other lady got up and started preaching and it was just a a real kind of mess. Um, But the the lady who did the preaching, she was saying, well, this lady doesn't have a demon, she just needs help. And maybe that's true. Um, But uh, a little disconcerting on the airplane to have somebody... uh, doing that sort of thing, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and go back in the text to verse 32, where it says, they, the audience, was astonished. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. And then down in verse 36, they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, what a word this is, for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And so the report about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. So the, the text here notes that the crowds were amazed at the words of his teaching, endowed as they were with authority and power to command even the demonic spirits. Um, Matthew chapter 7 is another perhaps more well-known reference to this. It says in Matthew seven twenty nine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes of the day were weak, uncertain, equivocating in their teaching. Now this authoritative authoritative quality means that Jesus was not bound by the Jewish traditions. He was not constrained by the fear of man. I'm thinking of, you know, teacher getting up here and he has a bunch of scribes or Pharisees or Sadducees or whoever, and just a general audience in front of him who have heard, you know, X, Y, Z teaching over the years, and he feels like he has to appease them, and so he says the same thing that they have already heard. Nothing new, nothing different, nothing to rock the boat, just to fit in. He doesn't have that fear of man. He did not have to leaf through the Talmud to know what to say. He did not have to be an expert in the text of the Mishnah or the commentary or analysis of centuries of rabbis in the Gemara so that he could draw from their varied opinions and use them as his own. In other words, he wasn't up there saying, this commentator says this and this commentator says this and this guy pushes back and says this and this guy responds this way and just leave the audience in a a mess as far as what they're supposed to believe. He was not wishy-washy, but rather unequivocal, direct, simple, to the point. 
without back and forth debate. His words were substantial, not empty, not platitudes, not words. You know when somebody uses words that can almost have any meaning you want to assign to them? Like they just throw out a bunch of you know, words like a word salad and you can just kind of mix and match it however you want it to make it work and it's, you know, it doesn't really say anything. Jesus read and knew the law of Moses and the prophets, the Tanakh. And more than that, here's the key, he knew God his Father. And that allowed him to truly understand what he read in the Bible. Now, people can read the Bible, they, you know, just, they can spit out a, a memorized verse, but does it mean anything to them? You've all, you may have heard of the illustration of the, of the actor, uh, the, the, um, the Broadway you know, uh, actor who can uh, recite you know, the lines of Shakespeare, and you give him Psalm 23, and he can recite those. And then you give them to a man, a pastor perhaps, who really knows the shepherd, and you hear the difference in his words and how he expresses himself because he knows the shepherd. He doesn't just know the words. He knows the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus' manner was direct and to the point. And this is what, what, what astonished the people. They're, they're saying like, man, this guy just gives it like it is. He just calls them like he sees them, this straight, direct teaching. We today desire to provide the same kind of authoritative teaching that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago. Let me share with you the preface to our church's doctrinal statement, because I'm sure you haven't read it in a while, but it's a good one. It says this, along this line, it kind of touches on this authoritative teaching theme. It says this in a lengthy quote here in the notes in the, in the grade-in box. The presentation of the doctrinal position of Fellowship Bible Church is not an innovation. It represents rather a declaration of the stand which our fellowship has taken since its inception. Those believers who first saw the need for the establishment of a Bible-believing ministry in Ann Arbor were aware of the failure of so many groups to hold fast the form of sound words. 2 Timothy 1.13, without flagging, those who have been the core of this assembly have always sought to maintain a biblical form of doctrine to the glory of God. There is an unchanging emphasis upon doctrine in the Bible, and so this idea of doctrine is the idea of, to which I'm attaching the idea of authoritative teaching. It's clear, direct doctrine. Indeed, it is referred to in the New Testament over 40 times. Of the first church assembly in Acts 2, it's recorded that their new converts continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Therefore, the primacy of what a man believes was given vital impetus right from the start in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, unfortunately, and this is writing now more than 40 years ago, and reflecting back on a movement that started uh, 70 years ago, uh, there are great movements underway to thwart the emphasis upon strong doctrinal statements. Efforts are constantly being made to dilute specifics, and strong appeals are made to soft-pedal any dogmatism. Jesus did not soft-pedal his dogmatism. What you believe, what he believed, he believed, and he said, you must believe. This is all, I continue now, this is all part of the modern trends toward pseudo-intellectualism, which pleads for an open mind and a relative approach to everything. 
You know, this could have been written yesterday, right? Except it was written 40-plus years ago in referring to the last 100 years. It's our firm belief that this sort of situation is entirely divorced from the Word of God. We place a high premium on what a man believes and find support for this contention in the Scriptures. Paul, for example, in writing to Timothy, exhorted him again and again about the matter of knowable and specific doctrine. He was left in Ephesus that he might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. If you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, you shall be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto you have attained. Twice over, Paul exhorts Timothy to devote himself to doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 16. Indeed, in his final appeal, shortly before his own death, he said to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine or teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching, sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall heap up to themselves teachers. And this having is because they have itching ears. We believe the days are upon us when men desire to heap to themselves teachers who will tickle the ears of the hearers with words of little substance. The need of the hour is for strong doctrine. The cry of the day is for clarity of statement. The yearning of the believing heart is for continuance with what was expl- is explicit and implicit in the word of God, the word of the living God. We at Fellowship Bible affirm without equivocation that what we believe to be the old-fashioned gospel and the doctrine of the early church. Therefore, we take upon ourselves the responsibility to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. As I said, this was written in the early 80s and pointed back to a movement from the late 1940s and forward that did not care for specific dogmatic requirements in a church's doctrine. Instead of certainty, dialogue, and room for variation was the major feeling of the day. But this, I I say this, this in fact is not a trend this idea of getting rid of dogmatic statement of doctrine. That's not a trend. Instead, it's a long-standing pattern of human behavior for all of history. People don't want to be told what to believe and what to do because that's against their nature. This This didn't happen just in the 1940s. Suddenly come upon us as if we discovered some new need to be friendly and dialogue with one another. No, rather, it's a pattern of human behavior. Clear expectations of punishment, uh, sorry, clear statements of expectation, clear statements of punishment, clear statements of reward stand against the desire of the flesh to do what it wants. Face up to the facts, friends. You don't want to be told what to do. In Jesus, we do want to be told because we know he has the wisdom to tell us all the right things to do. But outside of Christ, Now the desire of the flesh rules. We want to rule our own roost. Humans don't like to be told in no uncertain terms that they're sinful and can be certain of punishment unless they come to Christ. I mean, imagine the the Jews who are kind of this, you know, equivocating and, you know, this commentator and that debate and all this can't be sure about the afterlife and all of that. You know, even Sadducees deny it. And Jesus comes and says, unless you believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. You know, That's a major interruption in their way of thinking, isn't it? Furthermore, people don't like free gifts of God of the sort that he offers in Christ, but rather would work to achieve their standing before God because why? It seems counterintuitive in a way. Why would you want to have to work in order to achieve status before God? Well, 
not because you don't want to be lazy, it's because you want the credit. You want to look good. You want to boast. Paul says, look, there's no boasting in Christ. We're nothing. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So our selfish nature drives us to do everything opposite of what God wants. People do not like clear statements about this is going to happen or that is wrong or there's only one way of salvation. The worldly mind views such statements as closed-minded, mean-spirited, and exclusive. But the truth is simply that way, my friends. Math doesn't care if you're open-minded, wishy-washy, or diverse. There's one answer to the math problem on your math test. Math that operated like the wishy-washy, diverse, open-minded kind of math would not get us to the moon or back, would not give us the kind of computational power we have in our pockets today, or anything else that modern science and productivity has been able to generate. Some things just are the way they are because God made them that way. Jesus simply reported that in the spiritual realm, there are laws just like there are in the physical realm, in the natural realm. Gravity is gravity, whether you like it or not. Spiritual life is spiritual life. Spiritual law is spiritual law. The moral law of God is what it is. You can try to say, no, it's not, but that's like arguing against gravity. You go ahead and argue, okay? And when you fall down and hurt yourself, then I'll remind you, I told you this. Those spiritual laws operate as they were designed to operate, and no amount of hemming and hawing is going to change it. You can say all you want, I don't believe that way. But it doesn't change the facts of the situation. They're true because God made them that way. And so we desire to preach, to report, to teach, and counsel those things that are true. Now, section three of the notes here, we carry on with the remainder of the passage in which Jesus also heals the sick. doesn't just deal with demon possession, but he heals the sick. His authoritative word extends to his teaching, to demons, and to physical affliction. I mean, his authority is, well, if you think about it, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, we might say, well, that was just at the end, you know, after everything was done. Well, maybe so. But he had, a, we'll say 99% of it by here, <laughs> okay, if I could say it that way. He had a lot of authority in every realm to command you to live the way that you ought to live, to command you to repent, to command the demons to leave, to command even an illness to depart from Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was married, by the way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.5 indicates that. And, of course, if you have a mother-in-law, it seems like you'd be married. Um, The text describes what she had. Look at verse 38. He arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever. Okay, This, This is like, when you read this in Greek, it's just more pointed. It's a mega fever. It uses the word megas. It is a large, it is a burning heat. Okay, this isn't a 99.3, okay? Please, don't say you have a high fever if you've got a 99.3. This is like a 104 to 106, okay? This is heavy duty. What a discomfort she must have been at the moment. In fact, she's in bed. 
because he stands over her and rebukes the fever, the, the verse says in 39. He stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Now, today we have a good idea, a sort of good idea, of what causes a fever. I say we, you know, the people that study these things. And we know how to temporarily reduce most fevers with medicine. But, but it's a complex mechanism. I just quote here a little thing for your interest. A part of the brain called the hypothalamus acts as the body's thermostat. Okay, we know about thermostats, some of us mechanical types, or thermostat like the one on the wall there that keeps us too hot in the church a lot of the time, or too cold sometimes. Thank you, yeah, right. Um, when all is well, the body in the body, the hypothalamus is set at the normal body temperature. Fever develops when the hypothalamus is set to a, a higher than normal temperature. This resetting of the hypothalamus is usually caused by small molecules called pyrogens, pyro, that's kind of funny, pyro fire, in the blood. Well, leave that to the scientists. We cannot solve, solve the causes of all fevers. Um, you know, we might be able to deal with the, the uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the feeling of it for now. We might be able to knock it down for a little bit, but getting to the root cause isn't always so easy. Certain difficult bacteria, there's just not a medicine to just make it go away instantaneously. Viruses of most sorts. Cancers, yeah, you know, people that have cancer have these random fevers that come and go and... Um, but yet with a word, again, Jesus rebuked the fever as if it were a personal being. Get out of here, fever. Well, it's not a personal being, it's not a demon, but he removed the fever nonetheless. And I believe that we're well justified to take it that Jesus removed not only the fever, as if, you know, he just gave some Motrin or Cetamedifin or something like that. No, but that he... Uh, took away the cause of that fever, down to the bacteria or virus or whatever was causing it. And Peter's mother-in-law, this is amazing, was so thoroughly healed. She didn't have to say, oh, I feel so much better. Let me rest for a few hours. She was so much better that she got up and she began to host the party of people that had come into the home. Right? You'd know how you'd feel if somebody said, honey, honey, just get up and serve. You know, like, I've had a fever for three days. I haven't eaten. You know, you you're weak. Not in this case. Jesus healed it right down to the last bacteria, so to speak. She was able to serve them. Now it says, uh, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Now what, what day was this? What day of the week was this? Well, he was in the synagogue probably on the Sabbath day, right? Left the, left the synagogue, went home with Peter, and then later that day, well, so the Sabbath ends at the end of the day. People say, okay, now I can bring, you know, I can carry so-and-so on the stretcher or whatever and bring them to Jesus on the beginning of Sunday, which is Saturday night from our reckoning of things, okay? So they bring, him, bring these people, all kinds of people, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. You can pretty much figure that if a demon says it, it's either the wrong thing that they say or it's the wrong time. Right? This is true. But it's not the time that Jesus wants them to be announcing 
this and making publicity out of it. It was disruptive to his ministry. As we saw other times in the Gospels, he would say to people, look, don't tell anybody this happened. It's going to bring unwanted attention to me and to you. You know, what happened when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? They wanted, the the religious leaders wanted to, when they found out, they wanted to kill Jesus and they wanted to kill Lazarus. I mean, the poor guy just got raised from the dead. Why does he want to go back there again so soon? Also, Jesus' message is not really fitting on the lips of unholy demons, is it? I do note, too, here that demon possession is distinguished from other kinds of illnesses here. Not all illnesses are caused by demons. In fact, the whole classes of illnesses aren't, aren't, aren't that at all, just so we're clear on that. Even mental illness, not all mental illness is caused by demonic work at all. Let's not think that way. Let's look on to verse 42. Uh, when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. Mark, Mark 1.35 tells us he went to that place to do what? When it was day, when it was night, he finished working with these folks and then probably slept some, probably little, then went out in the day and he went out to pray because Jesus needed rest and prayer to keep up with this frantic pace of ministry. But people found him and wanted him to stay longer. Hey, come back into the city here. Uh, the, the village, help us out some more. We have more people that need help. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. I, I can't stay. I have to care, keep on moving because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So in many synagogues in all the villages, there'd be a synagogue where there's a minion of men, 10 men, families that could gather for the synagogue or more, they would gather and have their meetings on the Sabbath days. Despite the wonderful work being done, Jesus had to move on. He was limited in capacity and could not heal everyone or cast out every demon because he had something more important to attend to. What was that? I must go on to teach the kingdom of God to others also. So put those two in in perspective. We read more text about casting out demons and healing people, but the more important idea is that he has to teach. He has to teach with authority. He has to teach with clarity. And he has to demonstrate that authority so people know he is from God. So as we close, we we could wish for someone or ourselves to be able to have the power to cast out demons and heal the sick. And many people over the years have fancied themselves to have this power but have proven to be fake. This history is not recorded in the Gospels so that we would lust after this ability. The history is recorded here so that we can see that Jesus is truly the Son of God and that his message was indeed from heaven. These things authenticate him as to who he was. Indeed, he is able to heal the sick, even today still, so we can trust him if he does or does not heal someone in any particular circumstance today. What we do know for Scripture is, is for sure is that it's not always his will to heal somebody today. In fact, it's always his will that's appointed unto us once to die and then the judgment. Often that death comes through some type of illness. So we know that it's not God's will to always heal illness, and we need to temper our prayers that way. In other words, 
talking about this morning, temper, temperance. We need to have self-control when it comes to our prayers and say, I'm not going to just fall down before God and full of passion and tears beg God to heal this person necessarily. I don't know if he's going to heal this person that has cancer or this other one that has some long-standing disease. I do not know. I'm going to control myself to pray what God's will would be for that person and say, God, your will be done. I don't know what that is, but I know that you can heal through various means or you may decide not to. It's not all bad for somebody to die and go to heaven if they're a Christian, now is it? (laughs) It's not not pleasant, but what, you know, who's going to be able to get out of that? These things are also recorded so that we can see how Jesus has the power to dismantle the kingdom of darkness. 1 John 3.8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He is well able to do that. So not only does he teach with authority, but that same authority is extended over physical and spiritual afflictions as well. For us, the most directly applicable part of this section of Scripture is about Jesus' teaching. I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. Since he had to, we have to. As I've often said before, we may not have all the same details that he had to preach, like you know, he would say the kingdom of God is at hand, just like John the Baptist did. We can't, we can't say that because the king is not here at the moment. But we do have the same basic idea. Unless one is born again by repentant faith, they cannot enter the kingdom, they cannot experience the kingdom, they cannot enjoy the kingdom of God when it comes in the future. And it will come. That's our message. And you need to get rightly aligned with God through Christ if you're going to enjoy that kingdom and experience it. So we could say this, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's delegated a portion of that to his church in order to preach the kingdom of God to the cities around. We happen to be in this city. We happen to have a reach that through our missionaries and through our work with Bibles International reaches other places, and we need to keep that up. We all need to be involved in whatever way we can to do that because that was high priority to Jesus. If it was for him, it should be high priority for us as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for uh, the word. Thank you for the clear teaching that Jesus gave, the model that he gave. Help us to follow that model and, and do, do likewise as well. Lord, whatever way we can be involved in extending the message of the coming kingdom and the need of repentant faith, Would you help us to do that in our homes and in our communities? We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.